Chapter Seventeen of the Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Kebble Chatterton. Chapter Seventeen Paul Jones, Pirate and Privateer. We come now to consider the exploits of another historical character, whose life and adventures will ever be of unfailing interest on both sides of the Atlantic. And yet, perhaps, this amazing Scotsman is today better known in America than in Great Britain. Like many another before him, he rose from the rank of ordinary seamen to become a man that was to be had in great fear, if not respect. His fame has been celebrated in fiction, and very probably many a story of which he has been made the hero, had no foundation in fact. There is some dispute concerning his birth, but it seems pretty certain that he was the son of John Paul, head gardener on Lord Selkirk's estate, near Kirkenbright. Paul Jones first saw the light in the year 1728. Brought up on the shores of the Solway Firth, it was only likely that he gave up being assistant to his father, and preferred the sea to gardening. In his character, there developed many of those traits which have been such marked characteristics of the pirate breed. To realize Paul Jones, you must think of a wild, reckless nature, burning with enthusiasm for adventure, yet excessively vain and desirous of recognition. He was a rebel, a privateer, a pirate, and a smuggler. He was a villain, he was quarrelsome, he was petty and mean. Finally, he was a traitor to his country. When he died, he had lived a most varied life, and had seen service on merchantmen, slaver, and man of war. After making several voyages to the West Indies and a merchantman as ordinary and able-bodied seaman, he was promoted to rank of mate, and then rose to the rank of master. Soon after the rupture between England and America, he happened to be in New England, and then it was that he succumbed to the temptation to desert his own national standard and to throw his aid on to the side of the revolutionists, for which reason he changed his real name of John Paul to that of Paul Jones. Notwithstanding that Jones has been justly condemned by biographers for having been a traitor, yet my own opinion is that this change arose far less from a desire to become an enemy of the British nation than from that overwhelming wonderlust and that irrepressible desire for adventure to which we have already called attention. There are some men who have never had enough fighting. As soon as one campaign ends, they are unhappy till another begins, so that they may find a full outlet for their spirits. To such men as these, the daily round of a peaceful life is a perpetual monotony, and unless they can go forth to rove and wander, to fight or to explore, their very souls would almost cry out for freedom. So, I am convinced, it was with Paul Jones. To such a man, nationalities mean nothing more than certain artificial considerations. The only real differences are those between the land and the sea. He knew that in the forthcoming war he would find just the adventure which delighted him. He would have every chance of obtaining booty, and his own natural endowment, physical and mental, were splendidly suitable for such activities. He had a special knowledge of British pilotage, so he was a seaman distinctly worth having for any marauding expeditions that might be set going. So in the year 1777, we find him very busy as commander 
fitting out to the privateer Ranger. This vessel mounted 18 guns as well as several swivel guns, and had a desperate crew of 150 able men. He put to sea and made two captures on the European side of the Atlantic, sending each of these prizes into a French port. The following spring he went a step further in his character as a rebel, for he appeared off the Cumberland coast and began to attack a part of England that must have been singularly well known to him. He had made his landfall by daylight, but stood away until darkness set in. At midnight he ran closer in, and in grim silence he sent away his boats with thirty men, all well armed and ready to perform a desperate job. Their objective was Whitehaven, the entrance to the harbor being commanded by a small battery, so their first effort must obviously be to settle that. Having landed with great care, they rushed upon the small garrison and made the whole lot prisoners. The guns of the battery were next spiked, and now they set about their next piece of daring. In the harbor, the ships were lying side by side, the tide being out. The good people of the town were asleep in their beds, and all the conditions were ideal for burning the shipping where it stood. Very stealthily the men went about their business, and had laid their combustibles on the decks all ready for firing as soon as the signal should be given. But just then something was happening. At the doors of the main street of the little town there was a series of loud knockings, and people began to wake and bustle about, and soon the sound of voices and the sight of crowds running down to the pier. The marauders had now to hurry for the rest of their work, for the alarm had been given, and there was not a moment to lose. So hastily the privateer's men threw their matches on the decks, then made for their boats and rowed off quickly to their ship. But luckily the inhabitants of Whitehaven had come down just in time, for they were able to extinguish the flames before serious damage had been done. What was their joy was keen annoyance to the privateer's men. But who was the good friend who had taken the trouble to rouse the town? Who had at once been so kind as to knock at the doors and to despoil the marauders of their night's work? When the shore party of the privateers mustered on deck, it was found that one man was missing, and this was the fellow who, for some conscientious or worldly motive, had gone over to the other side, and so saved both property and lives. So Jones went a few miles further north, crossed his familiar Solway Firth, and entered the River Dee, on the left bank of which stands Colkenbright. He entered the estuary at dawn, and let go anchor off Lord Selkirk's castle. When the natives saw this warlike ship in their river, with her guns and her formidable appearance generally, they began to fear she was a man of war come to impress men for the navy. It happened that the noble lord was away from home in London, and when the men servants at the castle espied what they presumed to be a king's ship, they begged Lady Selkirk for leave to go and hide themselves, lest they might be impressed into the service. A boat was sent from the ship, and a strong body of men landed and marched to the castle, which, to the surprise of all, they surrounded. Lady Selkirk had just finished breakfast, when she was summoned to appear before the leader of the men, whose rough clothes soon showed the kind of fellows they were. Armed with pistols, swords, muskets, and even an American tomahawk, they inquired for Lord Selkirk, only to be assured his lordship was away. The next request was that all the family plate should be handed over. So all that was in the castle was yielded, even to the silver teapot which was on the breakfast table and had not yet been washed out. The silver was packed up, and with many apologies for having had to transact this dirty business, as one of the officers called it, the pirates went back to their ship rather richer than they had set out. But the inhabitants of the castle were as much surprised as they were thankful to find their own lives had not been demanded as well as the plate. The ship got under way some time after, and put to sea without any further incident. Now the rest of this story of the plate runs as follows, 
and shows another side to the character of the head gardener's son. For, a few days after this visit, Lady Selkirk received a letter from Jones, apologizing for what had been done, and stating that this raid had been neither suggested nor sanctioned by him. On the contrary, he had used his best influence to present its occurrence, but his officers and crew had insisted on the deed, with a view to capturing Lord Selkirk, for whose ransom they hoped to obtain a large sum of money. As an earnest of his own innocence in the matter, Paul Jones added that he would try to purchase from his associates the booty which they had brought away, and even if he could not return the entire quantity, he would send back all that he could. We need not stop to wonder whether Lady Selkirk really believed such a statement. But the truth is that about five years later, the whole of the plate came back, carriage paid, in exactly the same condition as it had left the castle. Apparently it had never been unpacked, for the tea leaves were still in the teapot, just as they had been taken away on that exciting morning. But to come back to the ship. After leaving the Solway Firth astern, Joan stood over to the Irish coast, and entered Belfast Law, amusing himself on the way by burning or capturing several fishing craft. But it happened that he was espied by Captain Burden of HMS Drake, a sloop. Seeing Jones's ship coming along, he took her to be a merchantman, and so from her he could impress some seamen. So the officer lowered a boat and sent her off. But when the boat's crew came aboard Jones's vessel, they had the surprise of their lives, for instead of arresting, they were themselves arrested. After this, it seemed to Jones more prudent to leave Belfast alone and get away with his capture. Meanwhile, Captain Burden was getting anxious about his men, as the boat had not returned. Moreover, he noticed that the supposed merchantman was now crowding on all possible sail. So he at once prepared his sloop for giving chase and prepared for action, and, on coming up with a privateer, began a sharp fire. Night, however, intervened, and the firing had to stop. But when daylight returned, the engagement recommenced and continued for an hour. A fierce encounter was fought on both sides, and at length Captain Burden and his first lieutenant were killed, as well as twenty of the crew disabled. The Drake's topmast was shot away, and the ship was considerably damaged, so that there was no other alternative but to surrender to the privateer. But as both sides of the Irish Channel were now infuriated against Jones, he determined to leave these parts, and taking his prize with him proceeded to Brest, where he arrived in safety. In the following year, instead of the ranger, he had command of a frigate called the Bonhomme Richard, a forty-gun ship with three-seventy crew. In addition to this vessel, he also had the frigate Alliance, of thirty-six guns and three hundred crew, the brig Vengeance, fourteen guns and seventy men, a cutter of eighteen tons, and a French frigate named the Palace. All except the last mentioned were in the service of the American Congress. A little further down the coast of the Bay of Biscayne, above Brest, is Lorient, and from this port Jones sailed with the above fleet in the summer of 1779, arriving off the Kerry coast, where he sent a boat's crew ashore to bring back sheep. But the natives captured the boat's crew and lodged them in Trolley Jail. After this, Jones sailed to the east of Scotland and captured a number of prizes, all of which he sent on to France. Finally, he determined to attempt no less a plan than burn the shipping in Leith Harbour and collect tribute from the undefended towns of the Fifeshire coast. He came into the Firth of Forth, but as both wind and tide were foul, he let go under the island of Inchkeith. Next day he weighed anchor, and again tried to make Leith. But the breeze had now increased to a gale, and he sprung one of his topmasts, which caused him to bear up and leave the Firth. He now rejoined his squadron, and cruised along the east coast of England. Toward the end of September he fell in with a British convoy bound from the Baltic, being escorted by two men of war, namely H.M.S. Serapis, 44 guns, 
and HMS Countess of Scarborough, twenty guns, and then followed a most memorable engagement. In order that the reader may be afforded some opportunity of realizing how doughty an opponent was this Paul Jones, and how this Corsair was able to make a ship of the Royal Navy strike colors, I append the following dispatch, which was written by Captain Pearson, Royal Navy, who commanded the Serapis. The Countess of Scarborough was under command of Captain Thomas Piercy, and this officer also confirmed the account of the disaster. The narrative is so succinct and clear that it needs no further explanation. The letter was written from the Texel, whither Pearson was afterwards taken. Palace, Frigate in Congress Service, Texel, October 6, 1779. On the 23rd Alt, being close in with Scarborough about 12 o'clock, a boat came on board with a letter from the bailiffs of that corporation, giving information of a flying squadron of the enemy's ship being on the coast, of a part of the said squadron having been seen from thence the day before standing to the southward. As soon as I received this intelligence, I made the signal for the convoy to bear down under my lee, and repeated it with two guns, notwithstanding which, the van of the convoy kept their wind with all sail stretching out to the southward from under Flambar Head, till between twelve and one, when the headmost of them got sight of the enemy's ships, which were then in chase of them. They then tacked, and made the best of their way under the shore of Scarborough, letting fly their top-gallant sheets and firing guns, upon which I made all the sail I could to windward, to get between the enemy's ships and the convoy, which I soon effected. At one o'clock we got sight of the enemy's ship from the masthead, and about four we made them plain from the deck to be three large ships and a brig upon which I made the Countess of Scarborough's signal to join me, she being in shore with the convoy. At the same time I made the signal for the convoy to make the best of their way, and repeated the signal with two guns. I then brought two to let the Countess of Scarborough come up, and cleared ship for action. At half-past five the Countess of Scarborough joined me, the enemy ships bearing down upon us with a light breeze at south-southwest. At six tacked and laid our head in shore, in order to keep our ground the better between the enemy ships and the convoy soon after which we perceived the ships bearing down upon us to be a two-decked ship and two frigates. But from their keeping end upon us and bearing down, we could not discern what colors they were under. At twenty minutes past seven, the largest ship of the two brought two on our lee bow, within musket shot. I hailed him, and asked what ship it was. They answered in English, the Princess Royal. I then asked where they belonged to. They answered evasively, on which I told them, if they did not answer directly I would fire into them. They then answered with a shot, which was instantly returned with a broadside, and after exchanging two or three broadsides, he backed his topsails, and dropped upon our quarter, within pistol shot, then filled again, put his helm a-weather, and ran us on board upon our weather quarter, and attempted to board us, but being repulsed he sheered off, upon which I backed our topsails in order to get square with him again, which as soon as he observed, he then filled, put his helm a-weather, and laid us athwart hoss, his mizzen shrouds took our jib-boom, which hung for some time, till at last gave way, and we dropped alongside each other head and stern, when the fluke of our spare anchor hooking his quarter. We became so close fore and aft that the muzzles of our guns touched each other's sides. In this position we engaged from half-past eight till half-past ten, during which time, from the great quantity and variety of combustible matters which they threw upon our decks, chains, and in short into every part of the ship, we were on fire not less than ten or twelve times in different parts of the ship, and it was with the greatest difficulty and exertion imaginable at times that we were able to get it extinguished. At the same time, the largest of the two frigates kept sailing round us during the whole action and raking us fore and aft, by which means she killed or wounded almost every man on the quarter and main decks. 
at half-past nine, either from a hand-grenade being thrown in at one of our lower-deck ports, or from some other accident, a cartridge of powder was set on fire, the flames of which running from cartridge to cartridge all the way aft blew up the whole of the people and officers that was quartered abaft the main mast, from which unfortunate circumstance all those guns were rendered useless for the remainder of the action, and I fear the greatest part of the people will lose their lives. At ten o'clock they called for quarters from the ship alongside, and said they had struck. Hearing this, I called upon the captain to say if they had struck, or if he asked for quarter. But receiving no answer, after repeating my words two or three times, I called for the boarders, and ordered them to board, which they did. But the moment they were on board her, they discovered a superior number lying under cover, with pikes in their hands, ready to receive them, on which our people retreated instantly into our own ship, and returned to their guns again until half-past ten, when the frigate, coming across our stern, and pouring her broadside into us again, without our being able to bring a gun to bear on her, I found it in vain, and in short impracticable, from the situation we were in, to stand out any longer with any prospect of success. I therefore struck. Our mainmast at the same time went by the board. The first lieutenant and myself were immediately escorted into the ship alongside, which we found to be an American ship of war called the Bonhomme Richard, of forty guns and three hundred and seventy-five men, commanded by Captain Paul Jones. The other frigate which engaged us, to be the alliance of forty guns and three hundred men, and the third frigate which engaged and took the Countess of Scarborough, after two hours' action, to be the Palace, a French frigate, of thirty guns and two hundred and seventy-five men, the Vengeance, an armed brig, of twelve guns and seventy men, all in Congress service, under the command of Paul Jones. They fitted out and sailed from Port Lorient the latter end of July, and came north about. They have on board three hundred English prisoners, which they have taken in different vessels on their way round since they left France, and have ransomed some others. On my going on board the Bonhomme Richard, I found her in the greatest distress, her quarters and counter on the lower deck being entirely drove in, and the whole of her lower deck guns dismounted. She was also on fire in two places, and six or seven feet of water in her hold, which kept increasing upon them all night and next day, till they were obliged to quit her. She had three hundred men killed and wounded in the action. Our loss in the Serapis was also very great. My officers and people in general behaved well, and I should be very remiss in my attentions to their merit were I to omit recommending them to their lordships' favor. I must at the same time beg leave to inform their lordships that Captain Piercy, in the Countess of Scarborough, was not the least remiss in his duty, he having given me every assistance in his power, and as much as could be expected from such a ship in engaging the attention of the palace, a frigate of thirty-two guns, during the whole action. I am extremely sorry for the accident that has happened, that of losing His Majesty's ship which I had the honor to command, but at the same time I flatter myself with the hope that her lordship will be convinced that she has not been given away, but, on the contrary, that every exertion has been used to defend her, and that two essential pieces of service to our country have arisen from it, the one, in wholly oversetting the crews and intentions of this flying squadron, the other in rescuing the whole of a valuable convoy from falling into the hands of the enemy, which must have been the case had I acted any otherwise than I did. We have been driving about the North Sea ever since the action, and endeavoring to make to any port we possibly could, but have not been able to get into any place till today we arrived in the Texel. Herewith I enclose you the most correct list of the killed and wounded I have yet been able to procure, from my people being dispersed among the different ships, and having been refused permission to make much of them. R. Pearson. P.S. I am refused permission to wait on Sir Joseph York, the British ambassador, and even to go on shore. 
The killed were one boatswain, one master's mate, two midshipmen, one quartermaster, twenty-nine sailors, fifteen marines, forty-nine. Wounded, second lieutenant Michael Stanhope, lieutenant Whiteman, marines, two surgeon's mates, six petty officers, forty-six sailors, twelve marines, total sixty-eight. It is obvious that the British officers had fought their ships most gallantly, and the king showed his appreciation by conferring the honor of knighthood on Captain Pearson, and soon after Piercy was promoted to the rank of post-captain, and promotion was also granted to the other officers. But recognition was shown not merely by the state, but by the city, for the directors of the Royal Exchange Assurance Company presented Pearson with a piece of plate valued at a hundred guineas, and Piercy with a similar gift valued at fifty guineas. They further voted their thanks to the officers for having protected the rich fleets under their care. The British ambassador, Sir Joseph York, had considerable difficulty in procuring the release of the prisoners which Paul Jones had made from His Majesty's ships, and although he strenuously urged the States General to detain Jones and his ships as a rebel subject with unlawful ships, yet the squadron, after being carefully blockaded, succeeded in escaping one dark night to Dunkirk. Jones had lost his ship the Bonhomme Richard as a result of the fight, and now made the Alliance his flagship. The story of Paul Jones from now is not capable of completion. For a period of several years, his movements were somewhat mysterious, though it is known that on one occasion he sailed across the Atlantic in the remarkable time of three weeks with dispatches from the American Congress. Then the fame of this remarkable fellow begins to wane. After peace was concluded, the active brain and fervent spirit of this Paul Jones were not required, and he chafed under the fetters of unemployment. It is true that he offered his services to the Empress of Russia in 1788, but he seems very soon to have gone to Paris, where he spent the rest of his life. There was no employment for him in the French Navy, and finally he was reduced to abject poverty, and ended his days in the year 1792. The reader will doubtless have in mind that less than ten years ago, the United States had the body of Paul Jones brought across the Atlantic, and reburied in North America. It is not quite easy, altogether, to estimate the character of a man so contradictory as Paul Jones. Had he been born in another age and placed in different circumstances, there is no telling how illustrious he might not have become. He was certainly a magnificent seaman and fighting man, but over and above all he was an adventurer. Idolized as a hero both in America and France, he struck terror in Britain. His latest biographer has stated that the skull and crossbones never flooded from his masthead, and that he never sailed with a letter of mark. But that being so, it can only be a mere quibble which can save him from being reckoned among the most notorious pirates of history. A pirate is a person who performs acts of piracy. It seems to me that it makes little difference whether he hosts a conventional black pirate flag or not. It is not the flag which makes a pirate, but the deeds and intentions of which he is responsible. And if his biographer is correct in saying that Jones was never commissioned as a privateer, that is still one more proof that in raiding Whitehaven, the coasts of Scotland, Ireland, England, capturing and burning merchant or fishing craft on the seas, taking their crews into bondage, he was acting without any shred of legality, and therefore a pirate, pure and simple. A pirate, and a very daring pirate, he certainly was, though he was primarily a sailor of fortune. As one can see from his life, his devotion of adventure was far superior to his devotion to nationality, Scotch, English, French, American, or Russian. He was willing and anxious to go wherever there was fighting, wherever glory could be obtained. He was a man who despised those who did not keep their word, and in the incident of his fulfillment of the promise made to Lady Selkirk in respect of the family plate, we have, 
at any rate in the life of Paul Jones, a proof that sometimes there is honor among thieves. But his death in abject poverty is but another illustration of the tragic ending which was customary in the lives of many notorious pirates. End of chapter 17 Recording by Todd